Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I am joined by the fabulous Dr. Heather Hill. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Doing great, Hazel. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat to you again. Now, we connected about just over three years ago, around three years ago. Um, I I came to speak to your students at St. Mary's University, which was just such a fun day for me. Um, and then obviously at Marineland, we started doing some of your innovate research. So we've gotten to know each other, you know, over, over the last couple of years. And I'm just so excited to share what you have to say with, uh, with my listeners. I'm super excited to share it with you as well. I know my students were very happy to have listened to you come talk to them and they still talk about it today. So yeah. many of them have graduated now, but they, they come back and they say, that killer whale girl, she had some really cool stuff that she shared with us. Well, I will come back anytime, (laughs) anytime you want me. So obviously you are a professor at university, but you're also a researcher. So did you always know that you wanted to get into research? Uh, That's a really great question. Uh, No, not really. (laughs) I actually intended, I had thought about doing uh, training um, and then I had gone to, you know, undergraduate to undergraduate university to figure out, you know, how to go about doing the training. And then I ended up going in a path that said, oh, I'm going to do child clinical psych and work with kids, but use dolphins in therapy with them. That was sort of my game plan. Um, But then that plan didn't work out so hot. And so I ended up landing in the position in my graduate program where it truly was what I wanted to do, which was to, to understand and learn about dolphins. Um, And that's kind of where the research bug sort of caught me. I didn't, didn't really know what I had planned, what was in store for me, what I'd planned to do, but all I knew is I was getting to play with dolphins and watch them and interact with them in different ways, and I was pretty happy. That's amazing. That's so amazing. So you've always had a passion for marine mammals, because you said even when you, were, you didn't know exactly what you were going to do research-wise, it still invo- involved marine mammals in some degree. So what, what sparked that passion? Great question. Uh, pretty much uh, going to SeaWorld. So animals were my passion. I pretty much read every possible library book about animals when I was in elementary school and combed through the stacks of books and, you know, looked for horse books and I drew horses and had a, had a grand time learning about animals. But when uh, SeaWorld opened up in San Antonio back in, I think it was 1988, uh, I went for the first time and that was it. That's I, I, it was all about the dolphins at that point, the killer whales, the dolphins. And I really, really wanted to kind of do that. And so that was sort of in the back of my head for many years was how can I work with these animals? And as I, as I moved forward into graduate school and I was given an opportunity to make a decision about, do I become a trainer or do I go on and do, um, continue my graduate program and move forward into the world of academia and research, that was a tough choice. 
But yeah, what I, was the deciding factor in that? Well, I figured I could do more with an advanced degree um, and finishing my degree. And, you know, worse came to worse. If I decided I hated it, I could always go back to training. And sometimes I kind of wish I'd done it in reverse and done the training experience first and (laughs) (laughs) gotten the actual hands-on experiences of of actively training the animals. I think I would have benefited from that Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the, the studies that I develop and the ideas about how they interact and learn. Um, but that's okay. I've worked it out. Yeah. And, you know, for you specifically, you do still get to spend a decent amount of time around marine mammals and, you know, at SeaWorld. So, you know, in, in some capacity, you are still working with marine mammals. What, what is that like, you know, as you were a child, you got inspired to love marine mammals from SeaWorld and now, you walk in there as a researcher, you know, working, what does that feel like? It feels amazing. It's, it is the dream come true and being able to really express and share the joy that, that it brings to me. I mean, it could, I could be the most frustrated day and I hit the hit SeaWorld and all I have to do is just watch right now we're watching belugas, but whether it's belugas or killer whales or dolphins, it just kind of settles down and you just sort of go, Oh, okay. I'm happy again. And <laughs> Gives you that nice little boost of serotonin, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, um, so it's, it's amazing. It's so much fun to be able just to, you know, watch what they're doing, see the, their interactions with the trainers when they're working with them, um, learn to understand how they live their lives. Uh, it's just, it's, it's magical. I mean, I, I love it. It's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, as a trainer, I stupidly, naively, when I was studying, said to myself, I'm never going to do research. I hate research. I don't like statistics. And then I became a trainer and I started working with people like yourself. And I realized actually in reality, when you're doing it with the animals, it's so much more fun and so much more interesting. Um, And especially when you get to see some of the things that we have seen firsthand, you know, happening in real time, it it is incredibly exciting. Um, But you've worked around several different species. Can you um, tell our listeners a little bit more about just a brief overview of some of the projects you've done with different marine mammals? Yeah, um, actually, one of my favorite stories is to talk about the my thesis project that I had started um, with dolphins and uh, ended up finishing with sea lions. I uh, so I've uh, um, quickly, I guess I've worked with sea lions and bottlenose dolphins and killer whales and belugas, primarily. Um, every once in a while, I threw a parrot in there and some dogs, but my favorite, I think my favorite experience so far, um, was for my master's thesis. We tried to study mirror self-recognition with bottlenose dolphins and it was fascinating. It was so much fun to, uh, see how they responded to the mirrors. And, um, we had all kinds of ages of, of dolphins. We had calves that were about a year old. And then we had, um, I think our oldest animal was. 37 or 40, something like that. Her name was Jill. She was fascinating. She was the largest animal up in the pool and she would just sit in front of the mirror all day long and she would (laughs) move her eyes and she'd move back and forth in front of it. And it was just, it was her mirror. It wasn't anybody else's. So she's like, this is my time with myself. Everyone please leave. (laughs) Whatever it was exactly. So, um, but what was fascinating was we did 
full on mark test, which is where you put a visible mark with zinc oxide is what we used. And you kind of measure how long they spend in front of the mirror presenting the side with the zinc versus no, no zinc, right? The other side. Um, and we had some control uh, trials where they didn't have any anything on them. And then a couple of times we put Vaseline on them so that we could make sure that they could, you know, we controlled for the feel of having something on their body. Um, and I went through this process for about a year and a half. I had two uh, students help me code second by second um, video recordings of what they were doing when they were looking in the mirror and how much time they spent showing different pieces of their bodies. And all I ended up with was suggestive results. Nothing oh, was no. statistically significant. It was, it was like, eh, well, they might recognize themselves in a mirror, but we're not really sure. So my, my mentor, Stan Kuchai said, mm, this isn't quite enough to do for your master's thesis. I think we need to try something else. So I spent another year and a half. This is, yeah. And this is after a year and a half, like a year right. and a half of work. And, right. you know, it's not all staring at dolphins all the time. A lot of that's going to be, like you said, the coding and the statistics and just sitting on it line after line after line. Oh my goodness. That must've been crushing. Oh, it was, that's a great way to say it. <laughs> It was like so frustrating. So I, I kind of went back to the drawing board. I said, you know what? Let's take a step back and see if um, they can use mirrors to, to find an object. And so there's a, you know, a set of literature that kind of talks a little bit about, you know, the different stages of how to use mirrors and which animals can use what mirrors for which reasons and stuff. So we tried to do what was called a um, mirror discrimination um, with objects. So what the mirror mediated object discrimination, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, so basically what it is, we had mirrors present and then there were um, boxes below that had an object in it or two objects in it, depending on what part of the uh, project we were in. And um, could they use the mirrors to find the objects? It was the basic, the basic task. So we started working with um, dolphins uh, in a different pool. So they weren't in this, it wasn't the same dolphins that had done the mirror self-recognition. So we worked with dolphins in a different pool where we could actually create the giant apparatus with PVC pipe. And you become really, really handy with tools and other sorts of Oh yeah, materials. construction. Yes, you, you're not just a scientist or a trainer. You, you get to be, you know, a welder and, <laughs> and a plumber, so to speak. And absolutely creating all of these different pieces and devices and you're hoping that it works for the animals that you're working with because you have to think about where their eyes are and how tall they are and <laughs> the angle at which they're you know looking at the mirror so and some of that's you know limited by your your tools and your supplies so um so we created a mirror apparatus for dolphins and we created um, a mirror apparatus we use the same apparatus for sea lions. So we decided to run both sea lions and dolphins on this task to see if we could train them to do it. Um, long story short, dolphins could not figure it out. Either they weren't motivated to figure it out or they didn't understand what we were asking them to do, but the sea lions were amazing. They were so cool. They figured out it all and they did it like impressively great. We had four sea lions that figured out how to use the mirrors. They could detect an object with a mirror. And then we started working on discrimination with them. And we had 
one uh, sea lion named Splash. He was a, a protective contact animal and he was so smart. Oh my gosh, he picked up this discrimination task so quickly and it made me happy because he was a protected animal contact. So he, he, couldn't, he couldn't interact with humans or you know engage in shows because of his history, but we gave him something to do and something that was cognitively yeah. challenging. So that, that made me happy because I could, you know, we could keep him entertained. Oh yeah. That's, that's really, really great. And for me as from a trainer's perspective, I find it really interesting that the dolphins didn't really figure it out or they struggled because, you know, it's definitely nothing against their intelligence because we all know dolphins are so intelligent, but from a training perspective, I'm like, okay, like, could it have been approached differently? Or was it something to do with like the setup or something that they had learned previously that was interfering with it? It That's all just so incredibly interesting. But you started, you've done stuff with sea lions, with dolphins, um, and now you're currently working uh, with belugas, which yes. the, the sea marshmallows, I love them. <laughs> um, so tell everyone a little bit about what you're currently studying with belugas. How much you can see, because I know what's not published, you won't be able to chat about. Oh, yeah, no, it's a it's an ongoing, I, you know, it's so it's such a privilege. It really is a privilege. Any any of the work that we do with these animals, I, it truly that's what I always tell my students. It's a privilege to be able to come in and observe them whenever, you know, whenever we can, whatever they want. So since uh, 2007, we've been studying the beluga population at SeaWorld San Antonio, and then we've added multiple collaborations um, for shorter periods of time, but at least we've had opportunities to observe belugas at uh, the shed, uh, Georgia Aquarium, um, Marine Land of Canada. Uh, so uh, we have a colleague that's also doing belugas um, at Mystic. Uh, so basically, you know, it started off as sort of a continuation of my dissertation project, which was to learn about calf development and maternal care. Um, even though, you know, we know a lot about dolphin calves and we know we, we didn't really know much about beluga calves. We, we really didn't know much about their developmental course. Like they could, they could tell you when they're supposed to nurse. Um, they could tell you, you know, roughly that they're going to move from one position swimming to another position swimming, but most, you know, most facilities did not spend a lot of time looking at the behavior of these animals. Um, from a social point of view. So um, that's really what I wanted to make a difference in with starting off with bottomless dolphins. So we basically like, you know, studied, oh gosh, um, eight pairs of dolphin calves for uh, four years. And I followed every calf to the first two years of life. And then I basically wow. replicated that with belugas. Um, and since 2007, we have followed, I think we're up to 10 calves now, 11 calves of belugas, most of whom we've been able to follow, um, across their entire lifespan. So Amazing. we have, we have our oldest calf, calf, um, Oliver. Oh, they're always our babies. They're always <laughs> the youngest one. It doesn't matter if they're 15, they're still the baby. Absolutely. So he's, he and his brother are, are, um, gosh, what are they? They're going to be 15 this year, actually. So oh goodness, um, psychic. <laughs> you are, it's so amazing. So, so we've basically just had the privilege to follow the lives of belugas now um, to understand the development of calves. When do they start doing things like playing with water and um, playing with each other? Or uh, obviously, you know, when they're swimming with their moms, you know, what position are they swimming in and what kinds of things um, do they do with her and what does she do with them? 
We've discovered some really neat um, differences actually between dolphins and belugas and even killer whales with how mothers care for their, their calves. And I think that the coolest part for me is that beluga moms are pretty um, laissez-faire. They're, they're <laughs> somewhat permissive in their, in their care of their calves. They kind of feel apparently very comfortable in letting their calves wander off for large distances um, pretty much right after birth. There are some um, differences in individual mothers with some of them being more protective Mm -hmm. and restrict their calves movements a little bit more but for the most part the majority of the mothers that I've observed and then as I've shared the stories across multiple facilities and then even with some folks studying the cook inlet uh, beluga calves which is the you know most endangered um, population same story they they sometimes call them the teenage moms um, <laughs> because because they really like allow so much freedom of their calves yeah. and it's completely uh, um, you know, we didn't, didn't realize that. So, um, bottlenose dolphins and killer whale moms are, are a little more protective for a few months. They, yeah. they start giving a little more freedom at about four to six months, as opposed to two months. Or This is so, it's so interesting though, that you've been able to follow so many individuals for such a long period of time. And I think, you know, especially nowadays, a lot in the media, but even to some extent within the field, there's the big question of, okay, why is it important to have these animals? Why, why is it important to study these animals in managed care instead of just going out and studying them in the wild? Like why, yep. a question I get a lot is, well, why can't you just study them there? Um, you're the best person to ask that question to. <laughs> so, you know, so here's what I've learned. Um, we had, and it's a special story. His name is Tyunik and he is a an amazing rehabilitated rehabilitated case, but non-releasable. He was a calf that was found stranded. Um, they thought he was about three to four weeks of age um, up in Tyunik, Alaska, and uh, no mother, no no nothing. And so they they were actually able to, with 24-hour care with multiple inputs. Right, this was one of those really great success stories where you saw so much collaboration across all of the experts in the field. Yeah, they flew so, experts out there, you know, immediately to try to try and save this little guy's life. It was it was incredibly emotional and touching. Yeah. I think the whole field, like trainers, researchers, everyone was just so invested in this little guy's future. And trying to help him live as, as long as we could, you know, help him recover and live. And so that to me was like the most impressive, but what really came, what really struck home for me was I was able to be, because of the experiences that we had had. And at that point, um, I guess we had been following the same, you know, group of dolphins for 10 uh, belugas, not dolphins uh, for 12 years now. And so I had a lot of history about um, surrogacy and aloe maternal care and calf development. And, and so we sort of knew kind of what happens when calves are rejected by their mothers or if there are situations in which uh, assistance is needed um, or if nothing is needed and how often do adult belugas provide aloe maternal care. Um, and so because of that history and that expertise, I was asked to sit on, um, be one of the expert panelists to decide, you know, to answer questions about 
how likely is it that he's going to survive when released or, you know, do they provide out maternal care or can he go find his pod and, and find, you know, maybe find his mother or somebody to, to um, take him under and, and be their surrogate. Um, so the thing that was so striking though, I was the only one with the answers. The folks that had been studying um, the beluga population knew some of the information, but they didn't have the same, um, the, the same degree of experience because of the fact that we could follow the, the belugas for so much time. And we could go day in and day out and we could see them and we can be there as long as we wanted or as short as we wanted. And we watched these belugas anywhere from two to five days a week every week of the year. So we're, we're getting eyes on them 365, well, 52 weeks or maybe 48 weeks when you throw in, you know, Christmas vacation and summer. Yeah, and it's summer from burn. birth. It is literally from, from the moment of birth. Yeah. So you can account for so many different variables. You can say, oh, they were acting like this at this point because of this, mm -hmm. or, you know, this was going on in their environment, or this was the social configuration at this time. Yep. You know, you have so much data um, to put into that. And, you know, I think you're, you were definitely the best person to be sitting um, on that panel. And it's just incredible, you know, how far Tainuk has come. Yeah, he's doing amazing, right? So it's so, it was really exciting to be able to take that knowledge and say, here's my best, you know, explanation. And, and what I have always strived to do is once we have collected the information at the, at the population we're watching, the social groupings we're watching, then look to see how, how does that compare to, you know, the animals at Georgia Aquarium or the animals at Marineland. And then even more importantly, how does it compare to the animals in Cook Inlet or at um, other, other areas around the world that are being studied for the populations that, that they can monitor a fair yeah. amount of time. And the coolest part for me, and so this goes back to your, your point and question about, you know, what can we learn about these animals in our care? A whole lot. And so <laughs> much of what we see with the right social groupings, with the right configurations, um, matches. We are validating everything we have seen in our environment has been validated by research in, um, in uh, natural settings. So yeah. whether it's the cook inlet animals or the animals in the white sea over in Russia, we're seeing the same stuff. And, you know, what more can you ask for, right? That that's absolutely, you know, it's, it's incredible to be able to have people like yourself, scientists like yourself who have the answers, because unfortunately, just with the way the natural world is going right now, we are going to start seeing a decline and we are going to need people that do have the answers and do have the research to come in and help. And there's a very quick point that I want to make, because I think a lot of people, not necessarily people in the field that are listening to this, but whoever is listening to this, who, who doesn't have the same understanding about these types of proceedings as we might, a lot of people don't understand that when it's the case of a rescued animal, especially one so young, I think a lot of people think that it's the marine parks themselves in question who are responsible for saying, oh, this is great, we're just gonna take that animal. It's right. actually a much more complicated process than that. And timing yes. is a huge factor. You know, These are decisions that need to be made so quickly in order to save this animal's life. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what that process was, was like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Tyunik was a special case because he was, um, he had a lot, he had a long way to go. Um, 
So we had, he was in the care of um, Alaska Sea Life Center for nine months and was cared for 24 hours a day, seven days a week by individuals. And because of his state, his physiological state, he had to be carried. He had to be held in the water um, for a good, uh, I think for a good six to seven months of that time frame. So it wasn't until the latter couple of months that he was actually able to swim on his own, keep himself up upright without the assistance of humans, but he really depended on humans to eat. He depended on humans to hold on to them. So we had a little more time than the typical situation like you were talking about where you have a stranded animal and you have to make a decision quickly about yeah. whether, whether that's going to be rehabilitated and released or um, whatever the decision may be. Yeah, especially if they strand somewhere where they're not near right. a facility that's capable of right. taking care of them. Right. So, so it was, and that reminds me, uh, where Tyunik stranded was a good, I think like three hours, two hour, three hour flight from where he landed in Seward, Alaska. And then um, basically they, after they discovered that, you know, after all these months of care, he was improving, he was stabilizing, he was looking pretty good. They started asking the questions. And so it's multiple um, agencies, government agencies that make this decision. So because it was Alaska, it was the United States that um, brought in the, the decisions of the agencies. So between um, NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmosphere uh, so, uh, something, yeah, administration, something, something, there we something, are. Something government <laughs> official sounding. Right, right, right. <laughs> and and NIMPS, and then um, I think the USDA also has to uh, have some decisions on this as well because the USA, USDA governs all facilities that take care of um, marine mammals. So when they, they pulled together a panel and they sent out, they, got, they accrued a set of experts. I was included along with a number of vets and a number of other behavioral specialists who've been doing research in different areas. Um, and they gave us a, a list of questions to answer. Um, and so, you know, I did my best answering the questions as well as, you know, information that we had and what we could do after studying these animals for over 10 years at that point. Um, and then gave, gave the information to them. And then a committee from all these agencies made, you know, made a decision basically. And that decision was that he was deemed non-releasable. So he had stabilized to the point where he was rehabilitated and then now he's non-releasable. So now we have to find a home for him. And that decision is made by the government. So basically the, all the facilities who were interested in Tyunik and, and had been part of Tyunik's recovery, um, put applications in. And of course, because the, everyone fell in love with him. They were like, we want to come and live with us. <laughs> right. But it's not an, it's still not an easy answer, right? Because yeah. he still required a lot of care. He was um, stable, but he still needed a lot of care. I mean, he was just about a year at this point when, yeah. when we were trying to make a decision and, and calves stay with their mothers two to three years. And in some cases up to five years, depending yeah. on the particular, you know, mother calf care. So it took, um, I'm trying to think, I think we started the process like, so he, he came to Seward in September. So he stranded August, basically end of August, went to Seward in September. And then I think in January was when I was responding to um, the responses, you know, to the to the questions where the panel the panelists came together. Um, there were a few clarification questions, and then the applications from the facilities went in. I think February, um, maybe back up a month or two. I'm, I'm trying to remember, 
Um, but then uh, the facilities had to present their cases and basically state, here is what, what we think. And so basically San Antonio, uh, SeaWorld San Antonio landed the, the um, home. And I think the key piece was because there were multiple calves near his age that were all male. And so you asked me earlier, you know, what, what kind of research have you been doing? Well, a lot of our research, the more recent research has been looking at um, preferences regarding social interactions between uh, calves and juveniles and adults. And one of the biggest pieces that really has kind of opened up from our understanding about belugas, um, much like dolphins, uh, different types of populations of bottlenose dolphins is that belugas really seem to prefer same sex groupings um, when it comes to the males. So if you have males that are similar in age, um, they seek out other males. If you have females, females will seek out both males and females, but it really, there really seems to be um, kind of a, a bit of a, a gender, bias. Grouping. <laughs> gender bias. Yes, if you wish. Um, yeah. So it's, it was quite interesting, but I think even more importantly, there were multiple calves. There was a calf yeah. that was within a month of his age um, oh, wow. at that time. And then there were, there was a calf that was a year older than them. And then there was, uh, there were several juveniles that were two or three years older and all of them happened to be males at the time. And I think it really was the best combination. The other thing that they were also looking for was, was there a, a female that could potentially sur be a surrogate for him? Yeah. If in fact he, he to was provide to that kind that. of mothering role, should he need mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Even though he mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, needing milk or anything like that, just, just someone to act as, you know, that yep. mother figure. Um, yep. yeah, for sure. But what I think was it's really so interesting, cool. but how yeah. is he doing now? He's doing great. He's, he's integrated. He's still because of his weird upbringing. I mean, he spent the first year of his life with people basically. Yeah. Um, and even though, you know, he integrated, uh, into he, his best friend actually is a Pacific white sided dolphin. Um, <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't really comfortable with the large white females. They, uh, he didn't really know what to do with them. And I think what his case really showed me is the importance of the early, rearing yeah. and experiences with a, mm -hmm. an adult female or an adult that that teaches you sort of what you're supposed to do um yeah. and so because he missed out I mean he he was with his mother they think for about three weeks because he did have milk mm -hmm. um he he didn't really remember what it meant to be a beluga so he probably my guess is he probably thought he was a human um with oh. special features and, and then when he was placed into a pool with a, a full-size beluga, he, he was a little, he wasn't really sure what to do. So he actually gravitated towards, um, towards Betty, the, the, the white-sided dolphin. And, and actually, I love this story because Betty was my first dolphin to ever study um, with, her, with her daughter, uh, Cassie. Um, oh, so many moons ago. So it made, made my heart happy to know that she was helping uh, another little, another little calf get, you know, take yeah. care of him and, and make sure he was good. So he would swim with her. He played with her, he interacted with, with her. And now what are we 2022? So he, he turned four um, back in August of 2021. And he does beluga things he he does lots of play he initiates a lot of interactions he's um, doing the kinds of interactions we would expect belugas to do um so you know he he has he has his buddies 
but That's I will such say an inspiring story. It's amazing. But I, but I'll say that first year of life matters. And oh, absolutely. He, you know, for sure. He, he takes some, he takes some time off sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, you're such an incredibly, you know, well-read and well-studied person, especially in this specific area, you know, I could sit down and talk to you forever about mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Um, but I think one of, again, one of the massive questions that kind of sits over this entire field is, you know, the quality of life that um, animals and human care can have compared to their wild counterparts. And as someone who has been studying, who has, are, are we all listening? This, this is a, a qualified scientist. Let's listen to the scientists, uh, people. Uh, your degree is literally behind you. I can see it. I know oh, yeah. my listeners cannot see it, but I can. There is proof. Um, in your opinion, do you think that marine mammals, specifically in human care, can have as good, my own biased opinions, potentially better, uh, quality of life in managed care as in the wild? Absolutely. No, no hands down. I think the more, the more we have learned, the more we have spent um, understanding their, their social needs, their, um, their space needs, their cognitive needs, we absolutely can provide the kind of care that they need to, to have to be stimulated in that environment and live an, an amazing life. Um, nope, they're not having to swim hundreds and thousands of miles like their natural counterparts have to. Um, but in every other way, they are. I think that's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that's a really good choice of words have to. Right. They don't have to swim hundreds of miles. Which means they have in neither environment do the animals want to. (laughs) Right, right. They're following food, right? They're they're looking for the next place. And so, you know, it's not, I think you're right, it's not a need. It's Mm -hmm. it's a the the food is a need. So they will go where they can meet those needs. But if those needs are being met without them having to expend so much energy, they're gonna be like, oh well, great, I can chill. I mean, I think, you know, some of the things that, that have come out real quick um, from the drone footage now. So I think drones and underwater film, uh, cameras, while we've had them for a long time, they're much better now, right? I mean, obviously mm. drones are, are new technology, but the thing that strikes me, that, and, and there's a point to this, when they get the drones out and they're following animals in their natural habitat, they rec- I think they are beginning to recognize that, as you just stated, the animals are happy enough to say they, they, well, maybe not happy, but they stay in an area a lot longer than we think they do many times, especially if there's sufficient food. Um, and I, you know, here, I guess here's like a short, a short-term example. I was off in the big Island in Hawaii last week. And the last day I was there, um, I happened to, I was like, Oh, it'd be really great if we could see whales, you know, off the shore. Cause apparently we're at a point where they sometimes frequent, well, there had been a group of humpbacks sitting there all day long, just in the same spot, because my guess is there was a bunch of food right there. So why do I need to move <laughs> if I can just, you know, have a grand time finding, finding food right here without, you know, without having to, to spend a lot of energy, as you said. Absolutely. So I think, I think as know, well, um, like one of the points that you made is in recent years, we've made huge strides into better understanding what our animals do need and then we've been able to adapt to meet those needs and you know sticking with the theme of research I think it's so interesting that some of the research that you're doing you know the cognitive complex 
multifaceted and layered studies are some of the things that we can also use to meet mm -hmm. our animals needs mentally. Um, mm -hmm. So for those of you that don't know, when I was at Marineland with the killer whales, uh, I actually got to participate in one of your research studies, which yes. was so much fun. Um, I helped out with the Innovate research that we did with our four killer whales, but also the killer whales at SeaWorld. And right. am I right in saying you also did Laurel Park? We were hoping to do Laurel Park and they began, but they um, ended up having to pull out uh, for a little while. Oh, that's a shame. Um, yeah. But yeah, we we were so lucky to stay at Marineland and it was it was fascinating to watch you very kindly and Mary, who was the first episode on this podcast, very kindly and invited me to watch some innovate sessions with um, with the SeaWorld San Antonio whales. And that was right at the beginning before we'd even started the training. So I was sitting there yeah. like, oh my God, like how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to communicate this to our animals? Um, oh, amazing. But it was one of the most fun training processes I ever observed, cool. just watching these animals figure out the concept of, well, just very quickly explain the concept of, of the Innovate Research. Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty common technique actually across marine mammals, um, and now they're applying it to other animals too. I, I guess Karen Pryor started with dolphins, and then she actually integrated it with the dogs. But it's basically you're teaching a concept that encourages the animal to produce a behavior it hasn't produced before every time you give it a signal. Um, so you you're teaching, you know. So it's kind of like Simon says. I sort of I sort of say it's sort of like Simon says. You know that Simon says you know, do a jumping jack, Simon says, spin in a circle, but instead of Simon telling you what to do, the animals get to choose what they want to do. Um, and let me they... tell you that uh, really confused them at the beginning because they, they were like, <laughs> this is not how this works. Like right, why their are entire you, like, world. the whales, like their faces, they were just like, um, have you suddenly forgotten how this whole training process works? <laughs> Right, because every life, every part of their life has been, I, a human gives them a hand signal and then they do what that hand signal tells them what to, you know, what they know is associated with it. Yeah, and so but now you it was, flipped it, it was just them, fascinating. Right? Once they'd figured it out, you know, I don't know what you've found in like your oh, it's actual amazing. results. amazing. I can cetera, share some of it if you want. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Happy to share. Yeah. So, um, so we've now, now looked at the data for the four animals in San Antonio or four animals at Marineland and five animals in San Antonio. And it's spectacular. It's great. They, um, so we, we attempted to measure creativity. That's what we're going for, right. To see how creative they can be and creativity can be defined in a number of different ways. It can be defined by how many behaviors they produce. It can be defined by how original the behaviors are. Um, so when we look at it, we see that, uh, if you just let the killer whales keep going and going and going, they can go for like 50, 60, 70, 80 trials. They were so motivated. Right. Like we were, I remember when we got the email and you were like, no test sessions have to be 20 minutes long. We were at freaking least. out. We were like, <laughs> oh my God, how are we going to keep our animals interest? Because with training, we're always taught short, positive sessions, you know, five right. minutes, keep it like that. Yep. And we were like, oh my God, our animals are going to hate us. But what we found was the complete opposite. Like, yeah. especially with the younger ones, especially Ko and Moana, yeah. they were just like, I don't want to stop. Let's keep going. Yeah. And to the point where we, we weren't even reinforcing, like Correct. they right. wouldn't even stop long enough for us right. to give a fish or ice or rub down. They found the creativity it's so stimulating. itself. 
right. reinforcing. And yes. I just remember holding the camera because obviously we filmed everything to be able to send it to you. <laughs> and we were just in hysterics. Like yeah. we were just laughing the whole time, like watching them come up with these cute, adorable, crazy, silly yeah, combinations of behaviors, right? That were just like, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> it was, I remember um, Moana suckled uh-huh. and that was my favorite one. We'd that's never amazing. seen him do it ever. Yeah. It's not a behavior that's trained with any of our animals. Well, right. instantly we trained it afterwards because we were like, this is too cute. Like we have to <laughs> Why not, this. right? Um, he, he stuck his little tongue out and he started the, yeah. and we were like, oh my goodness. It was just the most adorable thing. So yeah, just watching the animals themselves get so motivated and so interested mm-hmm. and invested in yep. the creativity for me as a trainer, it just kind of opened this whole new era of possibility of giving our animals choice. Yes, very much. Very Instead much. of us telling them we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Can we go into this new era of training where we can say, you tell me what you want to do. Right. Which I think is where, where we are trying to head because that provides more control. That provides them the opportunity to decide, you know, how they want to spend their time. I mean, they've always had choice to some degree because if they didn't want to engage in a behavior, they didn't have to. Right. Um, but now you really, now it's more proactive, right? Instead of, instead of waiting for the human to dictate what's going to happen, maybe the animal can now dictate what's going to happen, which we should be able to create an environment that allows, allows for that and still be able to show off how amazing they are and how intelligent they are and, and keep them stimulated, which that's what it's doing, right? That that's the whole goal is to keep them stimulated and, and, and be able to, share parts. And and the thing I think we need to remember is that, I mean, we don't keep ourselves, well, some of us do keep ourselves constantly stimulated. We have to have some downtime. We have to have some time where we're not learning all the time or mm-hmm. um, constantly, you know, thinking about stuff. We, we, you, it's okay to be bored every once in a while. It's, it's okay to take a nap. It's okay. Yeah. To, it's okay to rest, to rest because you have take- to rest in order for your brain to work properly. Yeah. But I think, you know, all of everything that you've shared with us, you know, your, your mother and calf research, the, the creativity, innovate, cognitive research, it's kind of shepherding in for me, a new, a new era of training and a new way that we can interact with our animals and learn from them and help to protect the natural world. And it genuinely makes me so excited to see where this field is going to be 10 years from now. And I just have to say a massive thank you, not only for what you do, you know, day to day, but also for coming on this podcast and sharing all of your knowledge um, with everyone here today. Oh, I'm so glad. It's always, it's a pleasure, right? To talk about what you love doing and your passion. Oh Um, yeah, I know. I've had, trust me, I've had the hardest time keeping (laughs) these conversations with everyone to like an hour. Like, I just want to keep talking because it's just so interesting. Um, But yeah, thank you so much uh, for coming on, for sharing your wisdom. And um, I will definitely be keeping an eye out for your presentations at Imata this year. (laughs) Sounds like a good plan. I think they're going to, we're starting one of them for sure. So we're looking forward to seeing how it goes. And thank you for your time, Hazel. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus. Don't forget to tag me at Dreaming with Hazel, and I will catch you guys next week. <laughs>